father of modern liberalism, wrote probably one of the most groundbreaking books of the 20th century. Schweitzer was really not the first to think of these things. He followed in the footsteps of, of philosophers like Hume and, and Kant. But his work radically transformed Bible study and biblical work for much of the 20th century. Schweitzer's book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus, was an attack upon a passage that we're going to read this morning. In his book, Schweitzer, or, excuse, yeah, Schweitzer argued that these miracles of Jesus were nothing more than fairy tales. They were fanciful stories told by his faithful followers. They were hallucinations, perhaps, even, uh, that these disciples saw and witnessed. A, a, a floating Jesus, a Jesus walking on the water is, is, is against nature, against natural law and order. And so Schweitzer argued that these things were not true, that they were not historical to the, to the Jesus that lived and breathed there in Nazareth, but were fanciful and funny stories that, that helped capture audiences and helps to capture people's hearts and lives. Schweitzer wasn't alone in this. For rationalists, they sought to decode these miracles as they really pointed to something deeper and more meaningful in philosophical thought rather than thinking about them as actually being genuinely true. And so what Schweitzer did was undermine the biblical authority and reliability of Scripture. What Schweitzer sought to do in his fanciful uh, opinions about these miracles was for people to become distracted from the point of the story. The point that Mark is telling us this story. And so when we think about this this morning, there may be some here that have wrestled with this in their past. Maybe you're, you came this morning wrestling. Are the miracles of Jesus real? Did they really happen? Did Jesus really walk on water? Did he really do that? Did he really... Uh, touch a little girl and she came back from the dead? Did Jesus really heal people who were sick? Or, or was Jesus just a, a really good storyteller that could make people think in their minds that they were healed but when they were really not healed at all? What do you believe about Jesus and these miracles? I pray that if you come questioning their validity this morning that, that you would allow just a serious thought to think hard Think hard. Are these stories true? Do I believe them to be true? And most importantly, what do they mean? What do they mean for my life here living 22,000 years, excuse me, later? The context of our passage this morning fits closely uh, with the feeding of the 5,000. If you weren't here last week, we looked at this uh, probably one of the most famous texts in the gospel narrative outside of the passion narratives. Um, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, we said, was probably a very favorite of the early church because it's recorded in every single one of the four gospels as well as the pseudo-gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and, and uh, the pseudo-gospel of John. All of them record this story. Uh, lending itself to its popularity, and it's, it's really just a fun story, a, a, remember, a memorable story, as Jesus fed 
5,000 people. But it's on the heels of that, on the heels of what Jesus was doing in the feeding of the 5,000, what he was proclaiming about himself as the shepherd, the shepherd teacher who had been prophesied by Old Testament prophets, has now come in Jesus. And so in the midst of this, in the hype of all of this messianic language, we find our passage this morning where Jesus is ushering away his disciples from the crowds and sending them off, sending the crowds away so that he can be alone with his father. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, page 842 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to one of those pew Bibles. Um, take it, read it, gift from our church to yours. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when, he saw, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they thought, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's, it's I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds. And whenever they heard, he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. As we think about this passage, we must step back and think about what Mark is doing. Why Mark is telling us this story. Why he's included it in this particular place. Mark isn't writing a, a chronological a biography of Jesus. Mark is trying to prove who Jesus is. He, he told us as much in the very first verse of chapter 1 uh, that this is the gospel uh, about Jesus, the Son of God, that Jesus is the, is the divine Son of God who's come in flesh to save people and to invite people into relationship. He calls them disciples. And then he tells them what it looks like to be his disciple. And so if you've been with us this whole time, we have really devoted much of this early section to who Jesus is. Even this passage is revealing to us who Jesus is, about his identity. Jesus is manifesting in a visible way who he is. So to contrast that, in the Gospel of John, John declares who Jesus is. In Mark, Mark shows who Jesus is. He reveals by showing, by activity, 
who Jesus is, who his identity is, who he's revealing himself. So what Jesus is doing in this walking on water ultimately and fundamentally is revealing who he is. But it's also teaching us about who we are. Mark is setting the stage for chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the, is the pivotal change. If you're familiar with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, that comes in chapter 8. It's the change in the gospel. So if we were to look at just from a literary perspective, Mark is writing, he's sort of coming to, to a, a, mini, a mini climax right there in chapter 8, where Peter confess, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And from that point on, the story changes. The story changes focus. It's no longer about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. It's about what Jesus came to do ultimately. We'll find that Jesus at that point will begin to sell things like how he's going to go to Jerusalem and about how those elders and those scribes who have been confronting him day after day and those religious leaders who have been persecuting him will ultimately kill him. That Jesus will be arrested and, and tried and, and he'll be killed. And then three days later he'll rise again. And, and Jesus is explaining to his disciples and, and slowly they're getting it. What we find here in chapter 6 is, is the disciples don't get it yet. The disciples are slow to understand. <laughs> they see it but they don't understand it. They hear him, but they don't hear him. They don't quite get it just yet. And so it's that backdrop which we begin to see what Jesus is doing in revealing himself here in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, we could summarize this passage in this way. Jesus, the divine Son of God, who alone has power and authority to save. Jesus is the Son of God who alone has power and authority to save. It's a theme that we've seen again and again and again. But like a diamond, turning it in the light, you see it from just a different angle, and, and you, see it, you see the beauty of it in a different way. Each way you look at that diamond, it, it shines just a little bit differently, different hues and different colors. Well, that's what Mark is doing with these narrative stories. He, he's, he's kind of taking Jesus and turning him a little bit, so that maybe today is the day you finally see the glory of Jesus. Today maybe is the day where, where, where the sin that has entangled your heart, where the light of Jesus breaks through. And you see Jesus afresh. You see his glory shining as he walks upon the water. There's three ways, really three ways Jesus reveals his identity here in this passage. And that'll be sort of our outline. Three, three thoughts to kind of hang our thoughts on. Um, first, Jesus reveals his divine sonship by his dependency upon his heavenly Father. Jesus is revealing that he's a son of God, the Son of God, through his dependency upon God. We're going to consider that first. Secondly, Jesus reveals his divine glory by displaying his authority over nature, walking on water. Thirdly, Jesus reveals his divine power by demonstrating his authority over sickness. His dependency over, of, on God, on his Father, on his Father's will, 
his display of authority over nature, and his demonstrating of his authority over sickness. Let's look first at Jesus in this passage and his activity. Jesus sends his disciples away. What was probably a very long day, ministry for Jesus, just fed 5,000 plus people. Um, I would imagine Jesus was physically exhausted. I'm emotionally drained after dealing with just 50 people. I can only imagine 5,000 people and his 12 slow-to-understand disciples would have physically drained Jesus. The passage tells us that Jesus made his disciples get away. Go away from me. <laughs> he compels them to leave. Leave. Go and get the boat and go to the other side. Go. Get, uh, get. Bye. Please. I need some alone time here. We see in this Jesus is intentional to be with his father. Don't we? We see the intentionality. He says, disciples, I got this. I'll dismiss the crowd. You guys just get in the boat and, and, and I'll meet you. I'll, I'll catch up. Just go on without me. It's okay. He dismisses the crowd and then he goes up to the mountain to pray. Notice Jesus is intentional to have this, this time and this fellowship with God. He wants to be with his father. <laughs> this is the eternal son of God who's existed eternally in fellowship with his father who Paul tells us in Philippians 2 didn't account didn't count equality with God something to be grasped at but he humbled himself by becoming a servant well, we see Jesus as servant here he but he misses his dad he misses his father he misses the intimacy of the triune God he's not before his father's throne as he has been for eternity eternity that's a long time. Eternity passed. He's, he's enjoyed this fellowship. And we see Jesus intentionally sending his disciples away so that he can go up and pray. Verse 48, he's, or verse 46, he says, and he takes leave of them and he went up on the mountain to pray. He went on a mountain to pray. Verse 47 tells us that he was alone. That when evening came, he was by himself. When anybody around. Not only was this an intentional time, but this was also an uninterrupted time. Jesus found uninterrupted time to be with his Father, to pray. He was depending upon him. He was depending upon his Father. He was, he was showing us righteousness. He was showing what, what a human being is to do. In every moment, in every step, Jesus is depending upon his Father. Only three times in Mark's Gospel are, are we told that Jesus prays. First was in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and uh, verse 35, we're told Jesus gets up early in the morning. While it's still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus is intentional to be with his Father, to be alone with his Father. And in that story, we saw that the disciples came bebopping in there and, and destroyed that time. Jesus wants to be with his Father. He wants to depend upon his Father. He wants to, to show us what kind of Messiah he'll be. The only other time that it's mentioned is a familiar passage in Mark. Mark chapter 14. When Jesus is there with his disciples, he prays. He goes out to the, after the, 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 uh, the Passover and after uh, instituting the Lord's Supper. Jesus goes in chapter 14 and verse 32. And he went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And there he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. In every moment that Jesus is praying, his disciples aren't getting it. In every moment in Mark's gospel, Jesus is praying, we see the, we see the disciples missing it. But Jesus is slowly and subtly showing them his dependency upon his Father. I came to do my Father's will. I came to obey my Father. That's what I came to do. I depend upon my Father. But it also reveals to us our need for a righteous Savior. Jesus was human. It just mentioned that he was probably tired. He was probably weary. He was probably worn out. There's no doubt that he was. In his flesh, as a human being, Jesus was worn out. Jesus wasn't Superman. You know, Jesus wasn't like, you know, he, you know, bullets hit him and they bounce off him. No, he was flesh and blood. Just as flesh and blood as you are, Jesus was. But you see, the difference was that Jesus was sinless. So where we depend on our own strength, what, what do we see Jesus doing? He runs out to his father. Says, Father, sustain me. Father, I'm weary. I'm wearied by these people who don't get it. The men closest to me are fools. The other crowd, the 5,000, we're told in John, just want to rush him away and make him king. They're confused about who he is. Father, I just came to do your will, but they're not listening. But Jesus persevered. And we see in this a righteous Savior. Our need for a Savior that is holy and perfect. We find that in Jesus. We also find in this passage our need for time with God. It's so simple. If the eternal Son of God needed Jesus, or excuse me, needed, if the eternal Son of God needed his Father, how much more we? How much more do we need the same uninterrupted, intentional time with his Father? We notice here in this passage that he dismissed the crowd. He goes out to the mountain to pray. And notice we're told that he was there until at least 3 a.m. He not only had an intentional, uninterrupted, but he had time. He, he, didn't, he didn't just run up there on the mountain and say, Hey, hey God, uh, Father, I, I, I need help. Thanks. I got, a, I got other things going on. My disciples are, who knows what they're out there doing right now. Uh, they're probably lost out on that lake again, and I got to go rescue them. He doesn't do that. He goes and he spends quality time with his father. And I think the quality comes in two ways. First, that it was uninterrupted and in its length. As a father to my children, just being there isn't quality time. But when it's intentional and it's uninterrupted, well, that's what makes it, that's what makes it quality. They can tell that I'm there for them, not just there to be their father as a figure. It's just a person. It's a warm body but I'm there to be their dad. I'm there to love on them, 
care for them. We see that reverse in what Jesus is doing here with his father. And so we see our need for this as well. We are not sinless. We are weak. We come with burdens, weary. Maybe ministry has wore you out. Maybe church stuff is just, I'm done with that. I'm wore out from that. I am. I get weary and wore out. But, but, but what do we do? Do we turn to, to sort of pull up our own bootstraps and say, oh, I'm going to persevere, I'm going to get through this, I'm going to suck it up, and I'm going to just fight through this? Or do we go and have an intentional time with our Father in heaven? Do we say that it's going to be intentional? Meaning that it's, intentionality uh, means it's not going to happen by accident. You, you're not going to fall into intentionality. You're not going to fall. This is not going to like you're going to wake up and just stumble into this. You're going to have to plan for it. You're going to have to say, you know what? I'm a morning person, so I'm going to get up 15 minutes early. Or I'm a night person. I'm going to stay up 15 minutes late. Or, you know, I waste my lunches every day. And so instead of wasting my lunches, just feeding my face, I'm going to spend time with God uninterrupted. Everyone's different here, so I can't, I can't give you the how-to. Y'all are, everyone in here has a different life than me and than one another, but we can encourage each other in this. No one is without intentional time to be with God. Find it. Ask God, God, help me understand when is the best time to meet with you. Maybe it's early in the morning. Maybe it's at night. Find time to be with God and then pray then pray. You see, what happens is, is when we don't do that, when I don't pray, and I confess, there's often times I'll just move on through. What I'm revealing is my own dependency on myself. My foolish pride to think that I can do it without God. That's what we do. But Jesus perfectly obeys His Father. I think also when we don't pray, we have a low view of God's power. If we really believed that God was the all-powerful God of the universe, if we really believe, like we're saying, that God is a mighty fortress, a bulwark never fails. He is a strong and mighty fortress. It ain't ever, that house ain't ever fallen. If we really believe that, then we would find shelter in it. And so when we don't pray, we often reveal our own foolish, low view of God's power. And so one of the greatest ways to propel you into faith, into faithful prayer, is by reading and meditating on the great power of God like his power to walk on water. Let's look at the second point. Jesus reveals his divine glory by displaying his authority over nature. What Jesus is doing in the walking on water here is displaying for all to see, particularly his disciples, but us reading this today, that he is the divine son of God. Who else can walk on water? 
Who else can walk on water but God? We're told in the passage that in verse 48 that his disciples were making headway painfully. The disciples themselves weary from a long day of ministry. If you remember, they just got back. They had just gotten back from their mission trip, right? They just got back from their mission trip. They were exhausted from that. And as soon as that happened, uh, 5,000 people show up, whisk them away. They're there on this mountainside. They're confronted with their own sin of unbelief. Jesus is prodding them. You feed the people. I'm not going to. You do it. You believe in my power. You trust in my power. And, and so they're there, and Jesus has them doing activities. And, and it was emotionally and physically draining day. And then on top of that, they're out there rowing away on the lake, trying to get to the other side. What a reminder that in the midst of our biggest, I mean, feeding 5,000 people, I would have been, I mean, I would have been on cloud nine. This is amazing. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. And then what happens immediately? Trial. 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 That's what happens. When you have your best day, guess what? Your worst day is just around the corner. And so the disciples are out there rowing away, working. That word painfully, there are some translations, literally that means to be tortured. They were tortured out there. I mean, if anyone's been in the wind like that, you know, you know you'd be, it's torturous. Maybe driving or even maybe out on a boat. Just torturous. Rowing away they were. Emotionally drained. Physically exhausted. Ready to just quit. Give up. They didn't believe. We're told they didn't believe. They weren't trusting the power of God. Remember, these are the same 12 dudes who just a, maybe a few weeks earlier, Jesus was on a boat with them and was rocking back and forth and, and, and they were crying like little girls and, and running around. And what happened? Jesus, Jesus, we're dying. Wake up. And Jesus, in a word, silenced the winds and the waves. And they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? See, they, they hadn't quite grasped that who this was. They were slow to capture who this was. And so they're there trying and trying. But I want you to notice something amazing. Who sent them into that lake? Jesus sent them into that lake, didn't he? You know, I think Jesus knew what was going to happen. Those downdrafts there into the Sea of Galilee are, are really well known. Even today, if you go into the Sea of Galilee, you can be expected to face these, these downdrafts that come down. It's because the lake sits lower than the mountains that surround, and the wind comes across it and pushes down onto the lake. And that's just normal. Remember, these guys are fishermen. These aren't like, you know, amateurs out there on the water. These are professional fishermen, at least half of them are, out there on the lake. They know that this is going to happen. That this isn't surprise to them. It's like, wow, we've never experienced this before. But I want you to see that Jesus was the one who sent them out there. Jesus was the one that was trying to teach them to trust. That's why I believe this passage is really trying to help us understand what's going to happen in chapter 8. Jesus is teaching his disciples the costliness of following him. That if you don't trust Jesus in trial, it will be torture. 
that in the midst of your most difficult days, if we do not learn to trust the power of God, we will find it to be torturous rather than glorious. Jesus is trying to teach them because here's the reality for these disciples, that little windstorm that they, that they were tortured by uh, is going to be nothing compared to what they're about to face. Nothing to what they're ultimately going to face in their lives as they are beaten, as they're ultimately killed for believing in Jesus for trusting in Jesus. They're learning to trust in the power of God. And so we are given then this, this divine rescue at sea. Jesus comes. He sees them. He sees them almost probably laughably. I don't know. He, he's seeing them and he comes to them. Now there's this difficult passage in this. In this. As you read it, you might have heard it and said, well, that's strange. Why did he say that? Look with me in verse 48. We're told that they were making headway painfully, that the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that is about 3 a.m., between 3 and 6 a.m., uh, Jesus came to them. He left them out there to suffer. He was teaching them. He didn't come and rescue them quickly. He waited. Sometimes the rescue is slow that we might learn the lesson that he has for us, that we might grow in our faith. But he says this, he meant to pass them by. He meant to pass by them. He meant to, he meant to just go past them. And, and it might seem strange when we read that. And we're like, what, what, where is this coming from? I don't understand why. And perhaps when, for Jesus and his disciples, they wouldn't have understood that. But as we sat and we hear this passage, we're reminded that, that this is revealing something about God. In Job, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write this down. In Job, chapter 9, Job is, is telling us about who God is. Now, now, Job himself is in the midst of a trial. And he's revealing about God. He's telling us about this God who has brought this trial into his life. And he says this in, in Job 9, 8 and, through 11. This God who, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. He made the bear and Orion, the Pelides and the chamber of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Listen, behold, he passes me by, and I see him not. He moves on me, but I do not perceive him. He passed him by. Literally, God's glory in creation was reminding Job of his power. When Job looked to the stars, he was reminded that God is the one who formed this. He's the one that stretched this out. He's the one that created this. It's as if God's glory just passed him right by every night. And he missed it. That phrase, passed by, also has language rooted in, 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 in Exodus. In Exodus, Moses went to meet with God on the mountain. And what did Moses ask? He said, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see it. And we're told that it passed by him. The same language is used here in our uh, 
story. And it's reminding us that God is the one who passes by in his creation. God is the one who passes by. But not only that, we're told in the Old Testament that God is the one who walks on water. In Psalm 77 and verse 19, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Last week we considered Jesus was the new and greater Moses. He was the one foretold by Moses that, that, that a prophet would come, a son would come of the people of Israel. Remember, Moses was the one who fed them by, by, by food in the wilderness. Moses was the one who led them through the Red Sea. Now one greater has come. One who not only feeds from heaven, but who walks on the waters. Only God can walk on water. And God comes and rescues his people through water. Just as Moses and the Israelites were rescued through water, so these disciples are rescued through water. It is on the water that Jesus walks. At the beginning we talked about how this is an unrefutable passage. It says Jesus walked on the water. Not beside the water, not in the water, on the water. He walked on the water. Do you believe that? Jesus is revealing to us who he is. He is telling us who he is. And it's in the midst of this situation, in the midst of, of this terrible thing, what happens? The disciples are freaked out. Naturally so. They're tired, they're emotionally exhausted, they're wore out, and then all of a sudden this figure comes walking on the water. I mean, in this arena of life for them, this is natural. Honestly, if you and I were out on the water in the middle of the night, and we've been physically and emotionally exhausted, maybe from a long day's work, and we saw something coming towards us, I think we'd all be a little scared too. There's a ghost, you know. But particularly among these uh, merchants here, these sea merchants that are out on the waters, uh, there are ghost stories that I'm sure were circulated. Figures that they thought that they saw. And so most naturally, they're freaked out. They're scared. Who is this? And in the midst of their terror and fear, Jesus says something so powerful. Take heart, it's I. Literally, Jesus says there, ego eimi. Take heart, I am. Jesus claims for himself in this story the divine name of God. When Moses saw the glory of God, when Moses was, was, was met by God in the wilderness, who met him there? In Exodus 3.14, Moses says, Hey, you want me to go to the people? What's your name? What, what's your name? 
Who am I to tell the elders of Israel who's sending me? Who's sending me to the people? Ego imi. I am is sending you. I am is sending you. I am who I am is sending me. And the I am has come again to rescue his people. The I am, the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man, has walked on those waters to save his people. Oh friend, there is only one salvation, only one way to be saved, and it is through the I am. It is only through Jesus that we're saved. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're recognizing yourself to be a sinner, Jesus died as a substitute for your sins. The great I am of this passage would just in a matter of time go to a cross in Calvary, there just outside of Jerusalem, outside the city walls, and be slaughtered for the sins of His people. For all those who would turn from their sins and trust in Him. And if that's you this morning, I just want to invite you to turn from your sins and trust in the power of God to save your sins. Repent of your sins and trust in Him. Thirdly and finally, and we'll just move through this quickly, we see in this concluding narrative in 53 through 56 a a summary of of really things we've seen already but jesus here reveals his divine power by his authority over sickness brothers and sisters if you are familiar with the bible don't allow the familiarity to lose the awe of the power of god we can read this and say oh yeah jesus healed people Wow. Oh, Jesus healed people. People touched the fringe of his garment and they were healed. He is a powerful God. And you too can be healed today through the touch of Jesus. Through the power of Jesus, we can be healed. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, here something. I want you to notice something about this passage. When the people recognized him, look what they did. They ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on beds to wherever they heard he was. Brothers and sisters, we need to get busy taking sick people to Jesus. And I don't mean physically sick, I mean spiritually sick. We have a responsibility as his followers to take sick people to him. Not to give them little antidotes that the world gives, little psychological or sociological uh, complex solutions to their problems. No, we need to bring them to to the divine healer the divine physician, Jesus of Nazareth, and there bring them and say, here is where freedom is had. And Jesus alone, touch him. Reach out in faith and touch him and you will be healed. May we get busy bringing people. May we see it's a part of our everyday life. It's, brothers and sisters, missions and evangelism isn't a program that we do. 
It's a life that we live. Missions isn't for people overseas. Like you get on a plane and then it becomes missions. No, 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 no. Missions and evangelism is what it means to be a disciple. And in our discipling relationships, we need to be evangelizing and reaching out in missions. We reach the lost. That's the idea behind what it means to be a Christian. We must move beyond activity and programs to being intentional in our relationships to reach out to those that are lost and bring them to, to the healer. How sad it is that we've been healed, but yet we don't take people to the healer. May we do that. I pray this morning that you would come to grasp the power of Jesus, the power that he demonstrates in, in his dependency upon his Father, the power of Jesus in his, his display of authority over nature. He can walk on water, get in boats, and the winds cease. This is the Almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who spoke into creation these things. I pray this morning that you would grasp the power of God to heal sick. He can heal your heart today. Jesus comes in the hour of need. He always does. It may not be in the time that we think it needs to be. We always want it sooner. But he always comes. He always comes. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan was a Jesus-like figure. Intentional on Lewis's part. And we're told of a great battle that they faced. And in the midst of that great battle, Aslan showed up. Unexpected, but perfectly on time. When he was needed the most, Aslan came. Lewis writes, Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. Jesus is like that. You may not expect him to show up on the waters of your life, in the trials of your life. You might not expect it, but, but brothers and sisters, I want to reassure your heart today. Jesus is going to show up. Believe in that. Trust he's there with you. Let him into the boat of your life. And the winds will cease. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are overwhelmed by your son today. We worship Christ, our Savior. The one who has come for our sins to redeem us from our lawlessness and rebellion. Oh God, you are a great and powerful God and may we, may we just grab hold of your glory today and your power and trust in it and allow it to transform our lives where, where we grab you and, and cry to you in prayer and we wait expectantly knowing that you'll show up. We give you glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude our time this morning by singing a powerful song. We've, we've just talked about the power of God.